0: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop
1: a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that
0: wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's.
1: Welcome to Significant Others. I'm Liza Powell O'Brien, and in yesterday's episode, we heard the story of Peggy Shippen, who, as a young wife and mother, was instrumental in turning her husband Benedict Arnold against his country. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about women and the American Revolution. And joining me to do that is the hilarious and brilliant author, Sarah Vowell. Sarah, what a pleasure and a treat to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much for doing this.
2: Sure thing, Liza.
1: So this episode is a follow-up to our Peggy Shippen episode, which aired yesterday. And Peggy, of course, is the wife of Trader Benedict Arnold, and she factored into his trajectory to a degree that i was completely unaware of um and i thought it would be great to talk to you just because it's great to talk to you but also because this you know when i'm i'm ingesting the story of peggy shippen and sort of how she went from being a what one can imagine as a fairly typical teenage girl who liked parties and dances and boys, and you know, loved her dad, but also sort of, you know, had problems with him that maybe she wasn't quite reconciling at the time. Um, and then she—I oh, yeah, be-
2: cannot identify with that at all.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and she becomes this force of, you know, if, depending on what side of the revolution you sit on kind of a force for evil in a way in the service of trying to help her husband get what she thought was kind of the best deal. And and I assume that she thought she was also doing what was best for her country, quote unquote, although it wouldn't have actually been so much a country if she'd gotten her way. Yeah,
2: Well, that maybe wasn't totally her priority. But when you right. say it, like which side you're on, even that, I mean just thinking about it in terms of geometry like the simplistic version of that war is it's two parallel lines it's these two sides squaring off right but when you get into it it's more i think of kind of this like blobby polygon where (laughs) you know like even i mean her family they were Kind of, they were in Philadelphia, right? So mm-hmm. they were sort of neutral, which a lot of people were just kind of a lot of people were just trying to get by and waiting to see, like, how's this going to shake out, right. you know? They and even in Philadelphia, like, you know, loads of Quakers, even something as seemingly homogenous as the as you know, Quaker society had all of these factions. They, I mean, they're like you know, inherently anti-war. But then you have the ones that were like anti-war, totally neutral. The ones who were anti-war kind of leaned toward the patriots. The ones who were loyalist, but anti-war. And then you have the complete contradiction of the fighting Quakers, like <laughs> General Nathaniel Green, who goes against, you know, all of those principles to become one of Washington's favorite generals. So even the Quakers can't agree. You know, so like there and then even, you know, the army and the the Congress are always at odds. And the whole pretty much the whole war, the Congress is always about to fire George Washington, you know, who is the like indispensable man to the whole enterprise. So, I mean, I just think it's it's so in keeping with who we are as a people just because it's all like squabbling bickering <laughs> you know they that's just on the patriot side right. you know so like i mean once they sometimes they fight the british but mostly they're kind <laughs> of bickering with each other so
1: when you say when you say it reflects or it's true to who we are as a people do you think that's not just people period are there are there a people who are better i mean there are are
2: some cultures that are a little more Mm homogenous and united like i don't know much about denmark but the danes seem pretty tight you know Mm. whereas like to me one of the you know the uh, most kind of significant moments of the founding the like Basically, in the first few minutes of the first Continental Congress, somebody says, oh, we should open with a prayer. And the second (laughs) thing that happens is someone stands up and says, no, I'm not praying with (laughs) these other guys because they're like Congregationalists and Quakers and, you know, um, Church of England, uh, Episcopalians, I mean. And so and like, you know, Sam Adams stands up and says, well, I'm not a bigot and I'll hear a prayer from anybody. But like at that moment, They're a bunch of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. And even they can't like get along enough to, you know, say a prayer together.
1: And those seeds, those seeds are still being. We are them today. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. And it's also, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, one of the things, like deciding factor in the war, in my opinion, is the French come to our aid. Mm-hmm. And but that didn't go well at first either. Mm-hmm. And um, the French, there was this storm and their ship broke and they kind of left when they were supposed to help liberate new- Rhode Island. And like Massachusetts was really mad at the French. And Lafayette writes this letter to Washington, you know, like why everybody's being so mean about the <laughs> French. And and Washington writes back like, that's what we're doing here. We're like building this new place where people are going to you know fight and bicker and disagree and they're going to you know say things without thinking and and that that's who we are that's mm. that's our purpose is mm. this kind of you know mess they're building so the fact that uh this teenage girl isn't necessarily on one side or the other right uh it isn't t- it isn't just her you know
1: No. And in fact, she has a brother who, you know, their father is this kind of remarkable coward, which I'm not saying with in a pejorative way, because I completely uh, sympathize with his plight. You know, he's he's there saying, like, I just want to survive this thing. And I'm not sure which way it's going to go. And he was kind of a loyalist and but he didn't want to get in trouble. And his son runs off and starts fighting with the loyalists and he's super pissed because he's going to like blow up the whole family basically. And so she even just in her own family is wrestling with, okay, which quote unquote side. And then her husband is this really fascinating portrait of a person who is, you know, deeply allegiant to one, you know, group sort of, Like, he loves Washington. He's devoted to Washington. He's completely anti-British rule. He's one of the first people to start fighting, you know, on behalf of the colonies. And yet he's— Super brave. He was very brave. The antithesis of the father, in a way. And Mm -hmm. then he is also— very allegiant to his own pride and his Oh my God. Right.
2: <laughs> I mean, you could do just the whole history of the world based on the delicacy of the male ego. I mean, sometimes Let's for do better, it. sometimes for worse, you Let's know.
1: Do that now.
2: <laughs> I mean, like that's one reason Washington sticks with it. It's yeah. his ego. You know, he's he's I mean he has so much perseverance and stamina, but he n- he wants to win. One reason, you know, the Marquis de Lafayette comes over to volunteer is he wants glory like any 19-year-old yeah. boy. And that doesn't sound so good, but then it made him brave. It made him helpful. He he wanted to fight, you know, mm-hmm. just as like Washington's sh- soldiers are abandoning the cause mm-hmm. all the time. Lafayette is just always like gung-ho to get in there and fight. Because of his ego. Mm-hmm. So it can be useful. And mm-hmm. for but for Arnold, yeah. I mean I mean, who doesn't identify with that really? Like the idea like these people don't appreciate me. Also, you know? they
1: owed him money. Like Congress oh. refused to pay refused to pay him. He had, yeah. you know, lost almost a leg and, you know, plenty of money. He had been paying his own trip. I mean, he was actually a really, really great general.
2: Yeah.
0: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort.
1: Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about Nexgard Plus. A foxaloner, moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. Nexgard Plus Chews provide one and done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews.
0: <laughs> You already know you're going to eat some of those McDonald's golden fries on the drive home. So you may as well add an extra order just for that.
1: (laughs) Your point about male ego, I think, is a great segue into discussing the condition and limitations of women in a time where there wasn't really any opportunity to do much of anything outside of a domestic role and so we see that
2: to me that was the like it depends on when you think the war starts you Mm. think the war starts in 75 uh then it's just war as we think of war but if you think of it as starting in Um, 1765 with the Stamp Act and all of that. There is like 10 years of resistance before Mm. the shots are fired. And that is, I think, led by the women because they're the Mm -hmm. ones who have to um, survive with all these boycotts, you know, Mm. like, I mean, one of the things We remember like the most famous is the Boston Tea Party Mm -hmm. uh, because they don't want to pay for the tea tax. So those guys just throw the tea in the harbor. Mm -hmm. But if you really think about what they were doing, boycotting the tea, they're I mean, their lives were just so miserable anyway. Right. And these women, and now they they have to, um, there are these stories about after they started boycotting tea, they would just boil basil leaves. Uh-huh. I mean, you're a mom. Can you imagine like raising your kids without caffeine? Yeah, like no, they're just uh-uh. doing all this. And then they also, part of it was um, boycotting British um Fabric because yeah. that was a huge industry in Britain, and so they um all the women start boycotting luxury goods, and that includes you know uh fabric, and so they start uh, making their own fabric, which becomes uh-huh. the homespun movement uh-huh. and I thought that was interesting in um your I read your script about Peggy, and one of like i one thing I had never thought about with the you know one of the great embarrassments or there were several great embarrassments for the revolution. One was losing New York City. That was Washington's Mm -hmm. biggest embarrassment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Losing New York City to the British, and then losing Philadelphia, the Mm. capital. And um, I had never thought of it as fun, you
1: know? (laughs) To be a teenager (laughs) in revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, sure. To a
2: teenager, Uh because these British guys show up, And they have stuff and they're throwing parties and balls and, you know. um, Yeah, they have money.
1: They have money and they have goods. And then they're also like, listen, London is actually a great town. Let's do more of that here. Whereas had been, you know, Quaker rule. It had been this race of the insipids, as John Adams called
2: them. (laughs) And then her friendship with John Andre and that ball he throws. And Mm -hmm. it's all about the fabrics, right? right? It's like... They're wearing turbans. Yep. And um,
1: many different types of fabrics, lots of draping. And he was very interested in describing it all, which it's kind of, I mean, I'm just impressed that anyone had the energy to get through the day at this point, let alone, you know, dress it up like that. So, uh, but things
2: have been so dour. I actually have, I actually have, a, I have a bunch of like citations to bring to you mm, about the uh, role of textiles. Okay. Um. So the, so these women are making, they start making their own fabric. They're like spinning their wool. They're mm-hmm. like sewing the clothes. And this is and, beginning um,
1: around 65, 1765?
2: Yeah, and especially Uh it like cranks up again in um, 1774. Mm. There's like the intolerable acts and they start like really seriously boycotting stuff. Mm. And John Adams sends this letter to Abigail Like, this is the mindset. Now, imagine you're a teenage girl and how you would feel about this. Mm -hmm. He says to Abigail, I hope the ladies are every day diminishing their ornaments and the gentlemen, too. Let us eat potatoes and drink water. (laughs) Let us wear canvas and undressed sheepskins rather than submit to the unrighteous and ignominious domination that is prepared for us. So like so much of that, all that. Like resistance before the war is about austerity, mm-hmm. you know, and like we like we don't need the finer things, and there there is something about like homespun to me. It's not just this movement; it's not just the cloth. It's almost this metaphor for our idea of America, you know. Sure, it's like I call it Opry versus opera. You know, Mm. like this idea of these, like, I mean, if you forget the fact that um, an autocratic king of France was the one who bankrolled our victory, you just put that aside. Sure, It's just these scrappy farmers, you know, who are like, like the French keep commenting. The word they keep using again and again to describe the American soldiers is naked, nearly naked. I mean, they are just so poor and they're just so like, you know unraveled literally i mean and then when the french show up like the the americans are so in awe of these like french dandies Mm -hmm. with their like pink collars and their satin and like there was this one kid who was a messenger and they think well that guy must be the general because he's all gussied up you know (laughs) and then And they think this guy, every time he goes over to the actual general, he's giving him orders. Because, like, of course the guy who's the fanciest looking is in charge, you know. So, like, the fabric is kind of almost the analogy for, like, the American cause during the whole war and before. And so then, like, if you were, like, I never thought about it before. But, like, um, there's this, like, when Benjamin Franklin, when he goes over to... um, Uh, When he goes over to France, you know, to start like trying to get the French government uh, to help us,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, his daughter writes to him and she's like, can you send me some French linen and lace?
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Like, whoa. You know, he (laughs) writes back and he he said that he got this message and he is this disgusted me as much as if you had put salt into my strawberries, the spinning wow. I see is laid aside, and you are to be dressed for the ball. Oh my! And so, like she's in Philadelphia, so you know, judgy. with your friend, uh, with your friend Peggy. Sure. And so, like this idea of the ball—that's
1: right—and
2: like, you're wearing lace to a ball. This is a moral outrage to these, you know, patriots. Do,
1: and do you feel a little like John Adams might have preferred austerity measures? always anyway? It yes,
2: he was like, from Massachusetts. Yeah. <laughs> he was, you know, a Puritan descendant. Like, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, that part of it is is really at the core of a lot of these people, you know, and it yeah. really did, like, I mean, luckily, they most of them weren't interested in the finer things, but, um, I mean, except for Jefferson, who was a total <laughs> shopaholic, you know, but... <laughs> There, there's something I hadn't really thought about until, it, like, you asked me to think about Peggy, and that time in Philadelphia, which I just thought is like, Ugh, yeah. like you know, the occupation, yuck. I mean, you think of, I think of that in terms of World War II, you know. Yeah. But um, no, maybe it was a blast. Right. And. You could see how a teenage girl would get swept up in that. You yeah. Know?
1: And how it can become very complicated when it's already, as we say, a complex landscape to navigate in terms of allegiance and what people are like. It was I mean, in hindsight, it's so easy to say, like, let me
2: just say they were both crumb bumps. I'm just <laughs> Peggy Ann Benedict. I think they're right,
1: like sure. But
2: I'm trying to understand where you know well, she it was coming it's to understand
1: the psychology, and and that's where I sort of began our conversation. Was saying I I can drum up a little bit more empathy for her when I think about how unclear the stakes were and the sides, and you know her father's acting kind of bizarrely and this other guy is you know really struggling with his boss (laughs) to put it one way and I wonder how much of you know the male ego clash is playing out writ large everywhere in very obvious ways and then if there's a female ego it is by necessity sublimated into domestic sphere and um and so and I, I'm you know, when we talked about having this conversation, you brought up Abigail Ad- Adams as a really interesting counterpoint because I'm thinking like, oh, maybe I should be more sympathetic to this person who, you know, it's not like she could be out running a company or, you know, she couldn't be fighting herself. And so I have to have some sensitivity to the fact that her whatever natural protesting energy she might have has to be channeled through her husband. And so, you know, it takes this kind of interesting route. But, you know, Abigail Adams is this completely other example of how to be yeah, a woman. I mean,
2: she well, for one thing, she's running the farm by herself, right. you know, for years and years. And it was like no small enterprise. Yeah. And I can't remember what there was something John Adams was doing with the Congress and like he's doing something world historical. And, you know, that day she's, I think she's sick and she's getting her kids inoculated for smallpox. It's like, like, you know,
1: (laughs) which (laughs) was a totally untested, you know, practice at that point, she's taking a huge risk and she might be killing them and herself, Uh but yeah, you know, it it adds up. So let's go for it.
2: Getting. Yeah. He's off running the world. But I mean, she like at, abigail abigail is is like well to me she other than jefferson is like one of the most quotable of Mm. the revolutionaries just because her letters the abigail john letters are like when it like kind of the great like literary product of the Mm. revolution just because they're both such great writers and i was thinking about her just in terms of um her it wasn't just that she was bright like her husband she was also spiteful Mm -hmm. and and like so much of the american side is just fueled by spite Sure, you know i guess the british side too that but theirs is more it's more like condescension like you know but the american side is just fueled by this like spite toward um their overlords and there was this moment where like one of her favorite my favorite letters of hers i have that somewhere where did i write that down I I wrote things down on cards. I love it. Um, like when we we're talking about there aren't like comp- there aren't two sides to me. One of the perfect moments of that is the lead up to the Declaration of Independence because mm. not everyone in the Continental Congress was for decl- declaring independence. Mm. And um, in fact, they had before they issued that they had this last ditch effort where they write this letter to George the Third saying like. You're on our side, right? You can help us out, right? And like he doesn't, George III doesn't even bother to read this mm. letter they send. And not everyone was in favor of sending that letter, by the way, including John Adams. He just thought it was a waste of time. And because um, the war had already started in Massachusetts by that point, mm. so they send this letter. This letter, like you know, asking the king to help them out one last time, and it, it comes out that the king doesn't even read it. And when that comes out, Abigail Adams, it's like she's just done with them, you Mm. know, and she sends this letter and she says, let us separate. They are unworthy to be our brethren. Let us renounce them. And instead of supplications as formerly for their prosperity and happiness, let us beseech the Almighty to blast their counsels and bring to naught all their devices. So, the, like, well you don't put. want to cross her.
1: No, know? no, no. Yeah. No. My God. Yeah. Um, I feel we've covered the range of options for women in revolutionary era colonial <laughs> America. Yeah. yeah. I
2: mean, once I saw, I went to a reenactment of the Battle of Brandywine. It's all, like, you know, the guys in the yeah. uniforms and the, the cannons and all that. And there was, like, one of the ladies... Uh-huh. And she was sitting off to the side, like, in her revolutionary garb. And she's sitting on a blanket, quietly knitting. Yeah. And, and I mean, it was very absorbing to watch her. Yeah. But, to me. But it was also, like, you can kind of see why people <laughs> focus on, like, these guys <laughs> running around. And there are the, like, Highlanders with their bare hats and the cannons and their smoke and action. And it, you can kind of see why people get a little more intrigued by that side of it.
1: Yeah. But- unless we could get her inter- interior monologue, which might be quite fascinating because I'm I'm working on the final episode for this season, uh, which I will not spoil here, but it involves revolutionary activity. And the subject of the episode writes at one point how, you know, it's harder on the women basically because they have to just keep it all inside and keep going. And and the men can have the sort of cathartic clash and the women are stuck home knitting and darning socks and. And
2: doing and worse. I
1: mean, like
2: there was the great moment at Valley Forge. They've had this horrible winter. 2000 of them have died. It's, but they start training with their German uh, trainer and they, they're they getting better. And the news comes from France that the French are, are going to become officially their allies, and they're going to send soldiers and money. And there's a great celebration. But in that moment, they've um, gotten that news from France. There's a letter from Lafayette, and it's from his wife, and, and um, their baby has died. Right. So that day (laughs) like for for him it's you know the total like contrast but you can imagine what it's like for her who was also like this pregnant teenager when he left to go fight in this war and now this this child has died which i mean war is bad but like there's nothing worse than losing a child you know and like that moment to me kind of summarizes the human experience of Mm. of that or any war, really.
1: Hmm. Well, I think that's a very poignant and um, valid stopping point for today. Um, kind of
2: a bummer. <laughs> I, I, let's end on me reminding you that I once saw, I I once went to Arnold's tomb, uh-huh. Benedict Arnold's tomb. You know, we uh-huh. went to London. They went to London, and he was buried in the church. At Battersea, um, uh-huh. St. Mary's it's called, and in the crypt, which when I went a few years ago was had been turned into a kindergarten, <gasps> and Benedict Arnold's tomb was right there next to the fish tank. Whoa where he belongs
1: i was gonna say i he's (laughs) that i think he's lucky to have gotten a spot anywhere i mean they he landed so poorly he thought he was going to be received with you know hero's welcome and yeah and people who knew him literally would pretend not to see him when they passed in the street
2: right so there he is
1: in the kindergarten
2: next to the fish tank
1: that's amazing well, that is just one of the many gifts you've brought us here today. Thank you so much, Sarah, for talking You're with us. You're
2: welcome.
1: That does it for this follow-up episode. Join us next time on Significant Others to hear all about a civil rights hero many people have still never heard of. Significant Others is produced by Jen Samples. Our executive producers are Nick Liao, Adam Sachs, Jeff Ross, and Colin Anderson. Engineering and sound design by Eduardo Perez, Rich Garcia, and Joanna Samuel. Music and scoring by Eduardo Perez and Hannes Brown. Research and fact-checking by Michael Waters and Hannah Sio. Special thanks to Lisa Berm, Jason Chalemi, and Joanna Solitaroff. Talent booking by Paula Davis and Gina Batista.
0: You already know you're going to eat some of those McDonald's golden fries on the drive home. So, you may as well add an extra order just for that.